You're listening to the Slice of MIT podcast, a production of the MIT Alumni Association. This is the MIT Alumni Books podcast. I'm Joe McGonigal, Director of Alumni Education. Joining me is Michael Gruenbaum, class of 53, whose new book, Somewhere There Is Still a Sun, was published this fall by Simon & Schuster and co-authored by Todd Hasek-Lowy. Michael, thank you for joining me. Why did you choose to write this book now? Well, there's a little story behind that. If you have the time, I'll tell you. My mother made an album of memorabilia of Terezin as soon as we got out of Terezin. Uh, you know, it had uh, all kinds of tickets and uh, documents and uh, coupons and everything you could think of. And she made an album of that. And when she passed away in 1974, I uh, inherited the album. I had it, I showed it to a few people from time to time. But then as I was approaching uh, my uh, venerable age of 80, I thought to myself, I better start thinking about what to do with this. And I finally ended up calling the curator at the U.S. Holocaust Museum in uh, Washington. And she came here and looked at it, and she couldn't believe her luck, because at this time they get only one document or one letter or something like that. Here there was a whole collection of things, and she just was ecstatic. And so she took it to Washington and showed it to the entire board of the Holocaust Museum, and they got very excited about it. So I got caught in the excitement, and I decided I was going to write a children's story and have the bear narrate the story. The bear uh, was the one item that uh, saved our lives. And so I wrote a children's story, and for two and a half years, I tried to get somebody interested in publishing it. I got absolutely nowhere. I wrote to about 80 literary agents. I wrote to about the same amount of publishers. Nothing. Nobody was interested. Some, some responded by saying that the children that uh, play with teddy bears are not ready to learn about the Holocaust. And those that are, pl- are learning about the Holocaust don't play with teddy bears. So there's a very small window there, and they weren't going to invest in that. Uh, but then suddenly, out of uh, two and a half years later, I, suddenly out of the blue, I got a phone call from the editor of Aladdin Books, saying, would I consider dropping the idea of a children's book? But instead, they would send a uh, professional writer to Boston to interview me and then write a book for the teenage market. And uh, so I thought about it. I should think about it for a few days. I thought about it for about 10 seconds, and, and that was it. Uh, <laughs> let's, let's do it. And uh, it was Todd. And he came for a couple of days, interviewed me. I showed him again everything I had. And then he went back to Chicago and he started writing. In all in all, he did something that I thought nobody could do. He immersed himself into the life of a 12-year-old living under the Nazi regime without having experienced any of that. I didn't think anybody could do that. And he just did a fabulous job. The book tells the story of your childhood in Prague. You're, you're born in 1930, and you're eight, nine years old when the Nazis occupy Czechoslovakia. You're put, put into the Jewish ghetto in, in Prague for some time before uh, finally you end up in Terezin. You, your sister, and your mother. Your father is killed before that. You tell the story 
life in Terezin for a boy uh, through the perspective of the boy. It's very, very much told in the present tense. Through to liberation and some, some of your life afterwards we're, we're, we hear about. How on earth do you wind up at MIT five years after the war? It's a good question. What happened was in 1948, April 48, we left Czechoslovakia because the communists were taking over the government. And my mother saw the handwriting on the wall, didn't want to have anything to do with another totalitarian regime. And we got a visa to come to the United States. However, we were unable to enter the United States because our quarter number hadn't come up. So we had to go someplace and we ended up in Havana, Cuba. In Havana, I was uh, enlisted into a, uh, an American high school. I didn't know English, I didn't know Spanish, but somehow I managed. I, as a matter of fact, I did it so well. I finished the high school in two years and I impressed the principal of the high school so much that he gave me a very good recommendation to MIT. Uh, I don't know how many people from Cuba applied to MIT. It may very well be that I was the only one. <laughs> I ended up, uh, luckily, uh, and luck has, been, has a lot to do with my life. Uh, luckily, uh, our quota number came up. In July of 1950, we arrived in the New York Harbor. And in September, I started MIT. So it just clicked very well. Great challenges in writing about, I, I can't remember the 1980s. You're doing a lot of memory here of the 1930s and 40s. And in the afterward, both you and Todd go back and forth talking about how this was a collaborative process. Talk about the challenges of recalling, but also, as he says, every piece of dialogue in this book is made up, is educated guesses at what was said. What was hard for, for you in, in uh, working through that process with him? You know, I can tell you uh, one little story. We uh, uh, have this episode where I went to the theater mm -hmm. and uh, I went uh, without my star and I was frightened to death, you know, about that. And uh, I went there because I thought the movie was funny. I wanted to laugh or change. And when I was in the, sitting in the movie, I wasn't laughing at all because I was so scared stiff. Todd, he just made up a scene of the movie. He just made it up. It was very funny. And, and I had to tell him, listen, we have to take that out because uh, uh, I don't want it to be uh, distracting from the main reason why we are doing this episode. The main reason was that here I come in, I'm so scared to death, you know, and trying to eventually really get out without being noticed and uh, so on. Uh, the scene, what, what we were looking at, has nothing to do with it. It could be the, smart, the funniest thing you could think of, and yet it doesn't belong there. So I, I took it out. Uh, yeah. There must be still things you're remembering, even after now publication. Uh, are there things you wish you still could, could have um, put in there? Memory is funny that way. You'll, you'll continue, I'm sure, after publication, remembering things that could have gone in. One of the things I remember, which I didn't put, get into the book, which is that... Uh, I had a couple of uh, musical instruments in Terezin. One was a harmonica. I learned how to play the harmonica a little bit. And the other one was uh, that uh, we took a comb and we put toilet paper around the comb and we blew into it. And that made a different sound and, uh, depending on how you blew. But these were uh, simple amusements to pass the time and, and entertain. 
well, uh, this guy Franta, he was trying to teach us different things. Like he taught us uh, a canon. I don't know if you're familiar with what a canon is. Uh, uh, where different groups start playing and singing a song at different times, you know. Uh, I never knew that, and uh, I learned how to do that. And uh, Franta tried to teach us under terrible conditions, whatever he could. By either he knew it himself, or he brought in some professors who were specialists in certain areas, and tried to teach us a little bit about that. Yeah. Uh, back to MIT, I'm sure there were students of all types who were involved in the war, veterans and non-veterans alike, uh, refugees, and you put your head in the books and tried to keep your mind out of that the, the, the last 10 years? Well, what happened was that, uh, <clears throat> as I mentioned, and I was still behind age-wise, and so I finished MIT in three years. And I did that by taking more courses, and I, did, I took courses in the summertime as well. Uh, I was not a stellar student, partially because... Uh, I had still trouble understanding the language. You were competing with valedictorians, uh, <laughs> and I don't even know when in the heck a valedictorian is. <laughs> you know, uh, but I did graduate. And uh, but how about emotionally, Michael? Was it was it for for you? And and there were other survivors, I'm sure, there in college with you. What, I did not see any. As a matter of fact, I, I don't recall seeing any. Well, I mean, it's, it's just sort of. It's a different life, a new continent, new language, new friends. You start all over again. I wonder if you'd read a passage for us. Um, very early on in the book, you witness this traumatic event. It's uh, a young couple committing suicide as the Nazis are storming into Prague. I stand there not knowing what to do. But soon, that doesn't matter, because I see it. Then, actually, out of the corner of my eye, the couple face down, still holding hands, their bodies in the shape of a crooked V, which is barely five feet away from the marching soldiers, who barely seem to notice. I don't see any blood, but that doesn't make me feel any better, no, at all. I take a few steps to the window and call out, Mother, but she, the word doesn't make much sound. Dozens and dozens of soldiers are marching right past them, like the crooked V is nothing more than some sheets Someone left outside by mistake. I tried calling mother again, but my throat won't work. So I'll read to you. My mother, two days after we were liberated, wrote a letter to uh, the relatives and friends who had managed to leave Czechoslovakia just before the Nazis arrived. Some went to Sweden, some went to uh, Spain and Portugal. So. Here she wrote a letter, uh, and she said, We do not know yet how the future will shape up for us. None of our old friends are alive anymore. We do not know where we are going to live. Nothing. But somewhere in the world there is still a sun, mountains, the ocean, books, small clean apartments, and perhaps again the rebuilding of a new life. Fantastic. <clears throat> you also cite a letter from your friend and protector, Terezin, Franta, the end of the book, which is a very powerful letter he writes to you after the war. Um, and when you've written to him, he writes back. And you've been very close with the uh, fellow alumni, their alumni of the Nesharim. 
I wonder if there's just one other passage you could read. I just love your reaction to, to Francis's letter. I read the letter two more times, hearing Francis's voice in my head a little more clearly each time. I, I, I argue with him a little, but mainly as a way to slowly accept that once again, just about everything he has to say is true. When I finally look up, I'm a bit surprised to find myself standing in the middle of a bridge in the middle of Prague. For a moment, I have no idea where to go or what to do. Both ends of the bridge are the same distance from me. There's much to do, too much to see, and I suddenly feel a strange, overwhelming obligation to live. Some sort of a perfect life, one packed with heroic acts so incredible I can't even begin to imagine what they might be. I take out the envelope, put the letter back inside, carefully return the envelope to my pocket, and start working back home again. I'm almost six years behind in school, which is a lot to be behind when you're already 15 years old. So here's my great heroic plan. I'll finish all my homework, every last bit of it, before dinner. Tell me some of the reactions you've gotten to the book. You've done readings, you've done interviews. What about the intended audience, kids? Well, the intended audience is a question mark because uh, most of the reactions of the adults, we couldn't put the book down. It's, it's amazing to me, you know. So uh, it hasn't reached the intended audience yet. It should go to schools and you know, libraries and so on. So I haven't really had too many reactions from teenagers. It's going to be difficult, you know how it is. The teenagers don't like to read that much anyway in the first place. Knowing the gift you made in 2010 to the Lewis Music Library at MIT, I was struck by the irony of your lack of appreciation uh, early on for music in playing, was it the violin? Do you think your parents would find some irony in the fact that you, uh, now a music library fund bears their names? My first exposure was really in Cuba. I had a teacher in Cuba who became a very good friend of mine. Uh, sort of a, a father image, you know. Mm. And he had a lot of uh, recordings, and I listened to a lot of records over there, and uh, that's what got, really got me interested, because, you know, I was in Havana, I knew nobody. Mm. I had no friends, nothing, you know. I was walking around the streets of Havana with a little notebook, translating Czech uh, sentences into Spanish and English to learn, you know, to memorize all those things. And uh, so listening to this classical music was a very good uh, relaxing thing for me. So I think maybe because I showed some knowledge about classical music, that's why maybe I got hired for this job at MIT. But I just loved uh, the, uh, the peace and quiet at the music library and the fact that in those days you had a little room where you can just sit yourself and, uh, and listen to music all by yourself. And, uh, and the biggest thing that I remember from those days is that the director had enough confidence in me that she sent me to New York to Sam Goody's, which is a place in New York where you bought the record albums for cheap, you know. And he gave me $200 to buy some records that I wanted to buy for the music library, you know. And uh, that really gave me a boost. <laughs> Tell me what you're reading right now. I just finished a book that my son gave me about Bert Bacharach. He was one of my favorite composers. 
and um, you know, I have a uh, recording in the DVD. And I also read this book, Hunting Eichmann, which is ter really a terrific book. It's like a detective story. It's just amazing. Uh, they, uh, they had 50 people involved in trying to abduct him and figure out where he was and how they did it. It's just incredible. Uh, I, and now, now I'm reading uh, Atul Gavandi, Being Mortal. Uh, it's all about uh, how uh, the doctors really talk to the patients and get them prepared for the possibility of uh, passing. Michael Gruenbaum's new book, Somewhere There Is Still a Sun, is now available online or at your favorite local bookstore. Michael Gruenbaum, thanks for joining me. Oh, thank you very much.